Hello and welcome to the second episode of Five Favourite Books with me, Bella Debrera. Joining me again today to talk about one of his favourite books is foreign affairs journalist and commentator Greg Sheridan. Today's book is a sort of honour trilogy by Evelyn Waugh. The trilogy was originally published in 1965, but it's made up of three books. Men at Arms, which was written in 1952, Officers and Gentlemen in 1955, and Unconditional Surrender in 1961. I have the book here. For people watching, they can see it's pretty thick. It's uh, 899 pages, which is about 300 pages short of War and Peace. So it's a pretty, pretty hefty book. The trilogy takes place during World War II, and it's the story of Guy Crouchback. He's a 36-year-old upper English class, sorry, upper class English gentleman from a very old established Roman Catholic family. We meet Guy in 1939, and he's been living in Italy for for eight years, just before the war starts, recovering from a failed marriage with his ex-wife, Virginia Troy, who uh, was unfaithful and left him. Guy has been in Italy sort of feeling isolated from the rest of the world. And then when World War II breaks out, he realizes that this is his opportunity to for meaning and he believes that it's a noble effort. In the first book, he struggles to find a regiment that will take him because he's 36, which is considered old in the 1940s. Um, and But he's eventually taken by a, a completely fictitious uh, royal corps of halberdiers, which is obviously war's invention. So the trilogy follows Guy's experiences throughout the war and his growing disillusionment with the war itself when he witnesses chaos and ignoble actions unfolding around him. Thank you very much, Greg, for joining me. I hope you're well today. And I look forward to talking to you about the Sword of Honor trilogy. You know, let me say at the outset, I think it's better to tackle this as three separate novels and they work that way. You should read them in order, Mm. but, you know, you get intimidated by a 900-page book. Whereas each one of them is just a regular length and they're so much fun. So tell me why this trilogy makes your top top five. Well, I think, um, you know, Graham Greene and uh, Cyril Connolly and Penelope Lively and a whole host of other critics regarded this as the finest work of fiction to emerge from World War II. And, and I would agree with them. And I, I think it's incomparably brilliant evil and war uh, effort. It's, it's a deep work of art. It's a great comedy. It's a genuine human story. Uh, there are memorable characters. You know, the, 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 the astonishing Apthorpe, a comic figure whom War has to kill off at the end of Volume 1 because he's such a scene stealer. There are other characters every time they come on the stage, Brigadier General Ben Ritchie Hook, you think, oh, yippee, what fun this is going to be. But actually, of course, it's a profound meditation as well. It, it addresses one of War's perennial themes, which is, how does a civilised man conduct himself in an uncivilised war? Guy Crouchback is no superhero. He's nobody's idea of a romantic lead, but he is a good, decent, civilised man. He's also a Catholic. That's important to him. And he tries to locate himself in history. He tries to behave honourably. Uh, the book, in, one, in some senses, is a love song to the British Army. But it is a love song of disillusion, eventually. Uh, eventually, Guy falls out of love with the army. And the army for war stands as a sort of a metaphor for the Catholic Church and indeed for the whole of Western Christendom, a magnificent institution which is, you know, goes back hundreds of years and has its hierarchies and its customs and its traditions and is being corrupted by modernity. You don't have to buy up all of war's sort of reactionary 
uh, views to see that his critique of modernity is is very powerful. In some respects, this is a book about the the opposition between integrity and modernity, the opposition between decency and uh, and cleverness. And of course, everything is so ironic. Even the title, The Sword of Honour, mm. refers to a sword which the British king makes in honour of, of the people of Stalingrad, as if being um, an ally of Stalin is an honourable thing. Yes, going back to that, um, the theme of the modernisation and war really hated the modern world. I think he wanted to have been born sort of two centuries earlier, didn't he? He never learnt to drive... He never learned to use it. He never. He hated using the telephone. He hated everything about modernity, um, and that it, seems very much an autobiographical sort of uh, appearance of Guy Crouchback is evil and war in so many respects. It's it's him. It's him. It's not only him uh, in real life, but it's what he wants to be as well. He wants to be an upper class Englishman. Well, that's right. That's right. So I'd say yes and no to that. War did hate modernity, mm. but. Um, a lot of it was caricature. So war operates at so many levels. A lot of it was self-caricature. He didn't. He, he never had a political program. He didn't. He didn't really want the world to go back to the way it had been. I mean, he didn't object to penicillin or uh, or or central heating or anything. But he just could see uh, the odious qualities of culture that were coming through. So, um, and now Guy Crouchbeck is based on wars personal experiences, but Guy is, is in many respects not remotely like war. Guy is faithful, Guy is modest, Guy is sober. Now, none of these adjectives could have applied to Evelyn War in any... In any uh, uh, Guy is a quintessential Englishman. He's, he's polite, he's a little diffident, he doesn't like to make a fuss, he does the right thing, even to the, to the extent of tremendous heroism, mm. uh, and he is a decent person. War, in a sense, you know, an English writer I like very much, Piers Paul Reed, wrote a wonderful biography of the actor Alec Guinness, and he had a great insight. He said Alec Guinness was essentially a very nasty man who struggled all his life to be decent, and there was heroism in the struggle. Mm. War was very much like that. He was an incredibly nasty, misanthropic, difficult person who nonetheless tried all through his life, especially through his religious faith, to to uh, to be a decent person, to behave decently, and um, and to celebrate the decent. And one of the things I love about this book is it's a celebration of Guy Crouchback's decency. So Crouchback, as I say, is not a superhero. Doesn't have an IQ of two hundred and ten. He's not a muscle bound uh, fellow. He doesn't, you know, win the girl. He doesn't win the war. But there's a, a theme of moral survival. Guy survives morally. He becomes disillusioned with the army. He hates the fact that Britain forms an alliance with Stalin. There's a passage, Bella, I've gone on a bit in, in this answer, but there's a passage I'd love to read for, for, for you at the beginning of the book where Guy can see the moral purpose of fighting the Nazis. And he's in Italy and he thinks to himself, he had expected his country to go to war in a panic for the wrong reasons or for no reason at all, with the wrong allies in pitiful weakness. But now, splendidly, everything had become clear. The enemy at last was plain in view, huge and hateful. All disguise cast off. It was the modern age in arms. Whatever the outcome, there was a place for him in that battle. And that sort of fuses Guy's view of himself 
and the great uh, sort of historic cause he was involved in, in fighting first the Nazis, and then later on he was very upset about the alliance with the communists. And it really did give him, the, the war really gave him that, that meaning, didn't it? Because he was sort of listlessly floating about in, in Italy, wallowing in, in a little bit of sort of pity after his divorce. And the war comes along and he's just, that's it. That's his, that's his destiny, isn't it? As, as you say. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, that it draws on Evelyn Moore's own experiences. You know, his first marriage ended because his wife... Uh, you know, took a love yeah, and, she was, and that's lost right. interest in. Which and, is Virginia, really, is the, the, the wife, the fictitious wife. Guy's wife does the same thing. There is yeah, a little I, bit of a similarity there. there. There is, although I don't think Evelyn Waugh's first wife was as either as glamorous or as <laughs> as Virginia. Virginia <laughs> Troy is a very wicked woman. And the theme she of the very, betrayed... She is, she really is. Uh, and the theme of the betrayed husband, of course, is another one that Waugh writes about a lot. So like mm. all novelists. So I, I think that Waugh is... Uh, a novelist of the first class, amongst the five or six greatest novelists the English language has ever produced. But all good novelists and all great novelists have to draw on what they know. And so somehow or other, they have to transcend just writing about themselves. Nothing is worse than writers writing about writers who are just themselves. But nonetheless, for background and incident and context and everything, they do draw very much on what they knew. And Guy's sense of injury and woundedness at his wife's uh, betrayal, which he never gives expression to because he's an Englishman. He doesn't talk mm. about these things. Mm. He, does, he certainly doesn't go on a kind of Oprah Winfrey, you know, self-realisation couch. Of, you know, <laughs> no, he doesn't. Please boost my self-esteem. No, no, he goes off to fight a war. Yes. And, uh, he's, and one of the, you know, his pra- he prays a lot in this book. And he has a very devout father who is a wholly good person in this book. One of the most positive character in the whole book. I think he is the most positive. He is he is the he is the father that war probably would have wanted as well. He's the perf- absolutely the perfect gentleman, sort of almost saintly with his with his interactions with other people. Quite saintly. And again, mm. that's a very hard thing to for an author to attempt, the portrait of a saintly character. But uh, Guy's prayers are very often pleased you know, let me have a useful role. Let Mm. me do something. And, of course, it's important to say, too, the book doesn't end in a despairing note, even though War himself, because he was so misanthropic and, uh, you know, such a misery guts, (laughs) enjoyed ending at a point of of loss. He's such a good storyteller and he's so faithful to human truth that in the end, Guy, you know, gets back with his old wife, Virginia, who is pregnant to the most odious, oh, terrible person Trimmer. in the whole novel, Trimmer. And, he's, <laughs> and Trimmer, who is a sort of a prefigurement of the Kardashians, you know, celebrity Trimmer. with no, no virtue whatsoever. No, and no talent and gets there by no, luck. No talent and, and chicanery and <laughs> yeah. dishonesty and so on. Dreadful, and odious And a hairdresser. Creep. A hairdresser who becomes a fake war hero, you know, and this is everything that war didn't like about Mm. modernity, the plastic nature of celebrity. Mm. But Guy gets back with Virginia because she needs, uh, I mean, we're talking about a long time ago, she Mm. needs a father for her baby Mm. and so he's very happy to do that. And then she is killed in the the Blitz and and he then has the the son and right at the end he marries... uh, a, a young woman from a Catholic family who had spent some time in a convent and so on. And even though war didn't really want to give Guy a happy ending, mm. and in an earlier version of the novel, they go on and have other sons. And war took that out because he was he, he was so unhappy at being having a happy end. But 
But his, his fidelity, as it were, to the artistic truth couldn't stop him. Uh, I mean, it's not a story about the destruction of Guy Crouchback. It's a story, in my view, about the moral survival mm. of Guy Crouchback. And that's why I've always found this book incredibly inspiring because, uh, you know, you can be a little bit uncoordinated like Guy Crouchback and a little bit lame and not mm. the most popular fellow and all the rest of it, but still you can do something that's worthwhile. Do you think it's it's war saying that the the objectivity the objectivity of sort of the truth of of the morals of of right and wrong will will prevail? Do you think it's for eternity? Is that do you think there's a deeper sort of a comment not not on Guy himself but on the morals that Guy that Guy adheres to? As well, yeah, I think that is true. But War, of course, is a very subtle moralist, mm. and he's a very good novelist. So he doesn't draw the moral out. He leaves it there. You can infer what you just said, I think, is a perfectly true inference uh, that you can draw out of that book, especially in the words of Guy's father. I mean, at one point, Guy's father is uh, all talking about the fortunes of their of their family, you know, this minor aristocratic English Catholic family. Um, and, and Guy says, look, do you really think God is worried about the preservation of one minor English Catholic family? <laughs> And Guy's dad says to him, well, you know, Guy, we know that God is concerned when even a single sparrow falls from a tree, that this doesn't happen without our father's knowledge and care. So, of course, he's concerned with our family. And all the way through, Guy really has no answer to his father. He has a wonderful dialogue with his father. And his father is also doesn't push his, um, doesn't push his mm. dogmas down anyone's mm. throat. And, and then he dies uh, relatively early mm. in the piece. But... The voice of the father explicitly states what is war's view, which mm. is that the divine economy supersedes and is greater than the human economy and can't always be understood mm. within the human economy. So, you know, Guy doesn't win any medals or and everybody he likes either turns out to be a traitor or or he doesn't do them any good through his efforts or whatever. Not everyone he likes. I mean, the, the halberdiers are good guys, you know. Jumbo Trotter and uh, Colonel Tickeridge and uh, and he, he loves the the fellow feeling. Of course, in the army himself, War found very little of that he, because he was such a difficult fellow to get on with mm. that uh, you know the soldiers nobody really wanted him. He was very brave. He was insanely brave, but no one wanted to serve with him because he was such a difficult uh, fellow to get on with. It sounds like he was a difficult fellow to get on with in in all aspects of life. Um, in, in I was watching an interview with someone who had known him as a child, and the famous story is that that they couldn't get bananas after the war, and War was telling his children about how they were going to get a delivery of bananas the following week, and the children were so excited, and all these bananas arrived, and he told them to stand around in a circle, and he ate every single banana in front of all his children instead of handing them out. I have a strong suspicion that story is apocryphal, oh, although, do you think? although it, it it has an element of war in it. <laughs> it but does. Even though he was misanthropic and difficult, he formed very deep friendships and very deep human attachments. Mm. His children all loved him, uh, so. Um, they didn't turn against him, you know, they didn't go and commit suicide, they didn't adopt different mm. surnames, and his wife loved him, and he had very deep friendships, you know, with Monsignor Ronald Knox and mm. uh, and uh, and lots and lots of other people, with other writers, Anthony Powell, with George Orwell. So you could you would imagine that Evelyn Waugh and George Orwell would be on the opposite ends you would, of wouldn't you? any political argument, and yet they were great friends, and mm. they recognised that each was a great writer, mm. and... Uh, it was when I said before he was misanthropic, he was, 
but it was more that he was um, moody and difficult and very bad in drink. And his friends mm. distinguished between the drunk Evelyn and the and the sober Evelyn and so on. But he was also the cleverest man in England, so he was also good fun to be around, you know. Um, so back back to the book in terms of characters, you know, um, you mentioned sort of like it's, it's a, it feels like a bit of a stage that the three books when they're put together, those characters come in and they go, and there's many people to keep up with. But there's some there's some sort of some standout characters that that really almost threaten to take over the novel, take over from Guy. One of them is is a chap called Apthorpe, um, who who features very very much in the first in the first novel. Do you want to talk a little bit about Apthorpe? Yeah, Apthorpe is a wonderful character. I loved Apthorpe. Any, anybody who's read Anthony Powell's 12-volume sequence, A Dance of the Music of Time, will see Apthorpe's evil twin in Kenneth Widmerpool. And uh, Apthorpe is a particular type of Englishman. He's sort of completely deaf to irony and uh, very earnest, plodding sort of guy. The sort of guy that nobody really likes, very clumsy, and yet full of a conviction that he's tremendously important. And he often succeeds in life simply because of his own sterling <laughs> conviction that he is the most important and most successful person around. Now, Apthorpe joins with Guy, and they're about the same age. They join the army together, and all their fellow trainees dub them both uncle because they're they're so much older. You know, there are 20-year-old bank clerks and these two guys in their mid-30s. And so they form an odd friendship, and Guy is happy to put up with Apthorpe's madness. And then two two things I draw your attention to about Apthorpe. Apthorpe is a germaphobe like Donald Trump. He's very scared that he's going to pick up some disease from sharing the latrines with the fellow soldiers. So he imports his own portable loo, the Thunderbox. Yeah. And he hides it in the grounds of the boarding school where they're doing their military training. So the first volume is called... Um, uh, is called Men at Arms. And of course, they couldn't be less like Men at Arms. They're like kids at a boarding school. And indeed, they are at a boarding school. That's where they're doing their training. And he hides his thunderbox in the grounds. And then the wicked uh, Colonel Ben Ritchie Hook keeps going out and using Apthorpe's thunderbox. And Apthorpe gets increasingly distressed that someone is using his thunderbox. And he keeps hiding it and putting it in chains and so on. And finally, Richie Hook blows it up. Yeah, and the, the, with Apthorpe the, in there. With Apthorpe in there. It's one of the great comic scenes. So this, this is a novel of profound seriousness, but mm. there's so much wonderful comedy in it. The other great comic scene is... Um, Guy is estranged from his wife, Virginia, but he doesn't hate her or anything. In fact, he probably still loves her, mm. but he's very distressed that she left him. And he finds that she's floating around and he's floating around and he feels full of life again because the Royal Corps of Halberdiers has brought him back to life. So he has dinner with, with her one night and he plans to seduce her because she's still his wife. Mm. So it doesn't break them. This is a very Evelyn War attitude. I don't know that any human being would ever feel this way, really. And in some respects, it's a bit out of character for Guy Crouchback, who is so modest. But because he thinks Virginia is still his wife, he can go forward and seduce her. And he mm. has her in his hotel suite for dinner and um, things are moving along. And then bloody Apthorpe keeps ringing up. <laughs> And That's he's right. drunk because he's also a bit of an alcoholic, Apthorpe. And every moment that Guy achieves a, a plateau of promise, so to speak, with Virginia, the phone rings and Apthorpe wants Guy's advice or something or wants to come along and join him at his hotel. And, of course, he spoils the whole evening. Virginia finds out what Guy is really up to and 
denounces him for being a, you know, a gormless prig and all the rest of it. And this scene is so screamingly funny. I must have read this scene a hundred times, but I picked it up just the other day in preparation for this conversation and I couldn't read it again without falling about, uh, <laughs> falling about laughing. And Apthorpe was becoming such a big character. So Whitmerpool, his analogue, did take over A Dance to the Music of Time and Anthony Powell ended up writing Whitmerpool became his main character. Apthorpe was too too good. He was too rich, too full of comic genius to keep going in this. Uh, so uh, War had to kill him off at the end of Volume 1, otherwise he would have dominated the whole story. And, and you get this, I mean, War was a great craftsman, but you get this mystical sense of the novelist not even completely in control of his own characters, that they, they just come on the page and they have a life of their own. Oh, absolutely. definitely got a life of his own. I think he was very much in danger of just sort of distracting us from the from the rest of the book. It would have turned into high comedy for the rest of the, yes. for, the for the for the for the rest of the the other two in the in the trilogy. Um, and then there's also there's you mentioned Richie Hook, Captain Richie Hook. Yeah, who Brig- has Brigadier, Brigadier. Brigadier, sorry, Brigadier Richie Hook, who has one eye. Yeah. Um, so- and is based on someone I was reading who who wore actually who actually served under very very similar I can't remember his name off the top of my head but um, a, a, again a very very real character. Um, yeah, one of one element of War's genius is that he can take satire as far as it can go while still remaining completely believable. So a, again, the sort of honor trilogy, a bit like I was suggesting to you about the Year of Living Dangerously. It works perfectly well as a naturalistic novel. You can believe everything that happens and you can believe every character. The dialogue is, of course, at a level of genius. I think War and P.G. Wodehouse were the two great dialogue writers of the 20th century. But Brigadier General Richie Hook, Ben Richie Hook, is a warrior. And that's all he is. He just wants to fight. Mm. And his interest, his view of tactics is... You want to biff the enemy. Yeah, it's biffing the, the thing, enemy. Just biff the enemy. <laughs> That's so he, English. He doesn't like genteel tactics. And uh, he, he says, if you see a bunch of fellows on your side getting into trouble, yeah. uh, the, the boffins call it, don't reinforce failure. What he says is, just leave them alone. Go and biff the enemy somewhere <laughs> yes, else where right. you can biff him really hard. <laughs> and Ben Ritchie Hook is blood curdling. There's a terrible episode. And I mean... You know, you can't even really joke about this. It sounds terrible, but even Walk can write about it. Mm. Where Ben Ritchie Hooks goes behind enemy lines and decapitates oh, a, yes. uh, 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 an enemy combatant. It involves Guy in this escapade, and Guy is kind of goggle-eyed and, and <laughs> slack-jawed about the whole thing. But, of course, in a war, you need people who are really willing to fight. And, uh, you know, fighting the Nazis... And um, and uh, uh, fighting the, the the Soviet Union at the start, but then f- fighting the Nazis altogether, um, that really required uh, soldiers who were willing to fight. And so, war portrays the British Army as having a genius because it can accommodate someone like Richie Hook. It contains him. He never goes one level higher mm. where he would be able to create spectacular mayhem at a strategic level. But his martial spirit, um, you know, functions in a way as, as great leadership amongst his other, uh, his other generals. And, of course, it's just the sort of thing that Churchill wanted in his general, just the sort of thing that Abraham Lincoln wanted in his generals. You know, Abraham Lincoln understood that to de- destroy the Confederacy, you had to destroy the Confederate army. 
So it wasn't until he got Ulysses S. Grant that he found a general who would do that. Well, Ben Ritchie Hook was, is a sort of the Ulysses S. Grant of the British Army in World War II, according to Guy. And then eventually Ben Ritchie Hook grows old and dies in some ridiculous escapade. But Guy is devoted to him. You know, he mm. thinks Guy could never be like that himself, but mm. he sees a tremendous martial spirit. And again, Ben Ritchie Hook is a character you just think, as soon as he comes on the page, you think, oh, wow, yippee, what fun this is going to be. Yeah. What uh, It's like a visit from your favourite uncle when you're a kid. You know, you think, oh, this is going to be terrific. You know, what's Ben Ritchie Hook got in store for us, uh, in store for us now, you know? No, it is absolutely brilliant. Um, and and I, I and we could talk a little bit about Virginia, who is who is not a very nice character. She's probably the only female character in in the book. There's 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 a couple, but she she's the main female lead, I suppose, in a way. But she only she still only appears very briefly. Like he, I, I, it's tantalizing. You get tantalizing looks at Virginia, but those those looks are not complimentary. He, he, no. War, War had a genius for suggesting character through mm. dialogue. So novelists, we were last talking about Christopher Koch, and he's a great novelist, but I thought if he had a weakness anywhere, it was in dialogue, whereas War is a genius with mm. dialogue. And Virginia's dialogue is, uh, is very... You get her character through her dialogue. There are one or two other female characters who are much more sympathetic. Guy's sister who looks after him and whose son gets taken mm. prisoner in war. And uh, she's desperately upset about that. But then he says to her, well, look, would you have had your son be a coward and not fight? And she said, no. And mm. he says, well, there it is. Um, also, Mrs. Stitch, who's yes. based on Lady Diana Cooper. Now, she's a scream. She's like Ben Ritchie Hook. Whenever she yeah. comes on stage, you just know there's going to be hijinks and great fun. But Virginia is a certain type of woman, very much like the woman who uh, is the wife in A Handful of Dust, mm. one of War's other great novels. She is self-absorbed, vain, very beautiful, very clever, doesn't really have a purpose in life. So um, War, one of his critiques of modernism, or, or of, of, the, of modernity rather, not of modernism, but of modernity, is its lack of purpose. So characters like Trimmer and a lot of the officers who do well, especially the ones who do well in public relations, they really have no purpose. They have no larger purpose. And Virginia has no larger purpose than her pleasures and her ease of life. So she has a series of lovers and after she leaves Guy, she leaves Guy because he's a bit boring and he probably was a bit boring. And then, um, but he thought he was doing everything Mm. Right, you know, he was was attentive to her and he was a successful farmer and he was managing the family um, money and all the rest of it. And uh, and then she circles back into his orbit because she is in need. And yet she is clever enough that she ministers to him well when he is sick. And there is, you, you get from war a sense that even though he doesn't like Virginia, there is something lovely about her presence. And a guy is 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 happier when he's in her presence, even though she is very cynical. Now, oddly, the fact that the main female character is essentially so, you know, such a bad person mm. means that this book has not endeared itself to women historically. Uh, but there you go. There are lots of bad guys, lots of bad blokes in this uh, in this film in this book as well. He only, I think, ever wrote one book where the the lead was a female and she was completely uh, sympathetic and that was the book Helena, which was about the, the mother of um, the Emperor Constantine. And she is a wonderful... So there are sympathetic women throughout his literature, 
But of course, he never wrote from a woman's point of view. He had this very old-fashioned idea that he understood men better than he understood uh, women. And I, th- um, I think he probably did. Yeah, yeah I think that was a fair, <laughs> fair call. I think on that his was part. a fair call on his part. Yeah. Um, yeah, she's not she's not an endearing character. But and, you know, we were saying earlier before we started recording that that you haven't met any woman who actually liked the character of Guy Crouchback. Um, but actually, you know, I think you've convinced me. I, I think I'm more sympathetic now towards towards his character. He might be a bit dull, but he's a he's he's the salt of the earth. He's 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 a good he's a good man, and he tries. He, is. You, you, can he tries count on him. you can count on him. You can count on him. Yep, and he tries to treat everyone with courtesy and decency. You know, he he is aware of his own awkwardness. So early in the book, he can't understand. He's lived in Italy for 10 years or something, and he can't understand why he's not really simpatico to the locals. But maybe he is more simpatico than he thinks he is. But his his ex-wife was simpatico to the locals. The aristocratic Mrs. Stitch was simpatico to the locals. When he finds um, people in a dispute, uh, he's inclined to sort of offer them some money or something like this to... to smooth things along and he wishes he could just have, you know, dissolved the situation with a clever word or, or put himself forward into their shoes or something like that. And of course, War is making a little bit of a comment on the English national character of that time, that there was a certain diffidence and restraint and a certain lack of openness, which had its good side because it was very well mannered and which had its its limiting side as well because it didn't really you know, create spontaneity and uh, and and all of that. Uh, what would you say War's sort of general comment about English society that comes through in the book was? Well, I think you can see all of War's writing in a way. Uh, well, first of all, you shouldn't get too, you know, theoretical about it mm. because it functions, first of all, as a magnificent story full of comedy and drama and humanity. But I think you can see all of War's opus as charting what he th- sees as the decline of Western Christianity or European Christendom. And uh, War was profoundly religious. He was a convert to Catholicism and it was the centre of his life. And of course, famously, one of his acquaintance, uh, one of his female friends said to him, how can you possibly claim to be a Christian when you are so wicked and bad uh, so often? And he said, if I were not a Christian, you would scarcely <laughs> recognise me as a human being. You have mm. no idea how bad I would mm. be. And he was aware of his own uh, moral um, failings, deeply aware. But the whole of his work really is uh, um, an elegiac, melancholy uh, lament for the decline of Christianity. Now, that's not a sufficiently emboldening, forward-looking program for the future, but War never claimed to have a program for Mm. the future. Where he found solace, though, where he found the traditional consolation of the conservative was in the moral survival of individuals. Charles Ryder in Brideshead Revisited Mm. and and indeed Julia. I suppose Julia is quite sympathetic in Brideshead Revisited, the heroine in Brideshead Revisited. Yes, I was going to to bring Julia up and even Julia's sister, whose name I've I've forgotten. Oh, yes, the... um, the, uh, yeah. And she goes off to become a, a nurse. She does. Yeah. She um. She's a good character as well. So she's yeah. She's wholly sympathetic. Yeah, wholly a bit, sympathetic. A bit nutty. A, a bit nutty. A bit eccentric. A bit yes. crazy. But, but you expect uh, that from the upper classes, don't you? I mean, look look at her brother. Um, and so. War only liked people who were a bit crazy. Yes. I mean, the, the, the triumph of both Guy and Guy's father 
is that these are two relatively normal people with no obvious psych- mm. psychological disorders who are presented sympathetically uh, by by war, and that's um, that's a bit unusual in itself. But where he found his greatest consolation, I think, was in the moral the moral survival of the individual. I mean, the other one of his other great novels, um, A Handful of Dust, again has a husband betrayed, and mm. he's a civilized man, and he finds that the Mayfair. West End circles around him are very uncivilised. And then he goes off into a Brazilian jungle and gets kidnapped by a crazy man who wants him to read Charles Dickens to him for the rest <laughs> yes, of his life. Right. And it's a typically crazy war construct. But the, the, the image of the civilised man amongst barbarians, this is, this is a very strong motif mm. in all war's work. And this is Guy Crouchback. He's a civilised man among barbarians. Not everyone in the novels are barbarians. He, he has friends. He's well-treated. As I say, a lot of halberdiers are sympathetically portrayed. But And, of course, the Jewish, um, the Jewish refugees he tries to help in Yugoslavia mm. towards, the end, uh, towards the end of the war. That also reflects Evelyn War's real experience. He was a liaison officer in Yugoslavia. You can see why this book was so unpopular with the left historically, because War saw the Yugoslav communist partisans as murderous bandits and cutthroat killers and would-be dictators, which is what they actually became. Whereas the conventional view was that Uncle Joe Stalin was a great ally Mm. and the partisans were the liberators of uh, Yugoslavia and so on. And Guy Crouchback at the end is trying to help a group of Jewish refugees persecuted as much by the partisans as Mm. by, uh, as by the threat of the Nazis. Now, he's, he's unsuccessful in doing this, but he meets great decency there. And indeed, there's a very sympathetic female character amongst that population mm. uh, as well. Um, actually, going back to the theme of uh, war's lamentation at the loss of Western Christendom, is it more specific? Was it, was it war's lamentation at the loss of traditional Catholicism? Because he hated what happened in Vatican II. He hated the the replacement of the Tridentine Mass. He hated the fact that Latin was lost and and all the you know the smoke and the, the incense and the and the, the vestments were suddenly cast aside for this modernity, I think. And I think I read somewhere that this sort of honor trilogy turned out to be a lamentation for the loss of traditional Catholicism. He didn't know when he was writing the book and that's that's what it turned out to be. But I don't know. I can't. I, I might be making that up, but no, no, no. it's not I, implausible. I think, no, I think there's a lot in that, but it's, it's very complex and nuanced and textured as everything is with, with war. So the Sword of Honor trilogy was written before the Second Vatican Council uh, convened. Mm. And um, so he would never have expected the, uh, the loss of the Tridentine Mass. But I, I do believe the book... The, the army functions both as a metaphor for the church mm. and for Western Christendom generally. Profound loss and decay in institutions which he loved. But um, it's wrong to pin war down too much and on specific political views. The other thing is he was full of such mischief and such self-caricature that he often exaggerated the degree of his own reactionary. I mean, my own father was like this. You know, dad was a pretty conservative guy and a wonderful guy, very funny and full of mischief. Once a Greenpeace fundraiser knocked on the front door Mm. and dad said, look, I'd I'd love to give you some money and I'd love to talk to you, but I'm just busy barbecuing a dolphin on the (laughs) barbecue out the back. 
Now, <laughs> Dad would never have heard a dolphin under any circumstances in his whole life, and he didn't have a wood chip barbecue. But this was the spirit of evil at war. You know, it was an, an anarchic spirit. So yes. if, uh, if a BBC interviewer asked him about Latin, he would not only give his own view, but he would then sort of exaggerate it by 500%, yeah. you know, yeah. with, uh, with layers of self-caricature. But, I thought you were but, going to tell me that he would give his answer in Latin first, and then and then translate it, and just to. My father did a bit of that. Yeah, my did father he? did. It. He, he did a bit of that. But um, I take you back to the character of Trimmer. So Trimmer perfectly exemplifies for war modernity. Trimmer is a cowardly hairdresser who finds himself. Not that there's anything wrong with hairdressers. Let me say, but <laughs> no, no, we love but, hairdressers. Uh, uh, yeah, but that's who he is, and he finds himself in the army. He's a hopeless soldier. He's a coward. He's a cheat. You can't rely on him. He betrays his his uh, fellow soldiers. But through a fantastic sequence of circumstances, British military public relations decides to market him as a great hero. So he then tours the United States, especially when Britain is trying to get the United States to come into the war. And because he's a wonderfully democratic hero, there he was, just a hairdresser, and now he's the hero of the war. And, of course, eventually he uh, develops a a passion for Virginia, and Virginia is basically said, told, look, if you go along with Trimmer, you can have, you know, money and free hotels and everything, Um, just humour him. And that is the absolute corruption of modernity which war is writing about. Now, when you think what has happened with celebrity and social media and all the rest of it, that's that's very acute mm. for war to understand that in the 1950s and, and right at the beginning of the 1960s. That's a very acute critique of modernity. But he doesn't, he doesn't beat you over the head with the lesson. He just... He just lets Trimmer flourish, even as, of course, naturally, Guy receives no recognition or anything for his for his genuine efforts at heroism. Not that Guy wants any recognition. Guy doesn't want any medals or anything. He just wants to do to do some good. But I think it's more at that profound cultural level that War as a novelist works. But of course, as a as a person being interviewed by the BBC and and all of that, you know, he um, he is just full of anarchic mischief you know and he he would uh affect views which who knows he might have held them but they mm. you know they're not they're not to be taken seriously they don't really infuse the uh the work although you're certainly right he hated the changes to the mass mm. so vatican i think he died in 1966 and the english had just changed to vernacular liturgy a year or two before and he he, he hated it i mean one of the things that drew him to the catholic church was the beauty mm. of its traditional music and uh, and liturgy. Um, another theme I wanted to ask you about was the interplay of Nazism and communism in the book, because it it is obviously a very it's essential to the to the trilogy and 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 World War Two. What what would you say about that? Well, here again, I think Evelyn Waugh had a really deep understanding of history, tremendously unfashionable. Uh, Guy Crouchback is happy at the start of World War Two because England has gone to war with Nazi Germany and its ally, the Soviet Union. Now, there's poor little England at that stage without the support of the United States facing up to the two most tyrannical behemoths of the 20th century, Nazi Germany and Soviet, uh, the Soviet Union under Stalin. The Nazis under Hitler, the Soviets under Stalin. And Guy thinks that's absolutely right. That is who my country should be fighting. 
And we are the friends of the Poles, we're the friends of the free Poles, we're the friends of, of the fighting free French. And he, he is a happy warrior. And he says to the war office in his efforts to get uh, accepted into the army, they say, but you're, you're not much of a soldier and you're 36. And he mm. says, yes, well, spend me first. Keep the young men, you know, mm. send me into battle. Mm. Use up us old duffers while we've still got a year or two of fighting capability in us. And he wants to fight. But as the war goes on, now, this is not really a profound criticism of the Allies, but this is the way it works out. The Allies have to ally with the Soviet Union after Hitler attacks the Soviet Union. So the left likes to pretend that it was always against the Nazis. In fact, a lot of the left in the West didn't support the war when the Soviet Union was allied with Nazi Germany. The wharf unions in Australia wouldn't load the ships. Mm. John Curtin was against Menzies dispatching troops at the start of World War II to join Britain in its fight against the Nazis. And um, George Orwell comments somewhere that insofar as the British left had any sense of patriotism, it was directed in favour of the Soviet Union, you know. Mm. And, and war is very alive to this and parodies it in a number of books. As the, war, as the Second World War evolves, its moral purpose becomes less clear. Of course, Britain must fight to survive, absolutely. But then, in the end, there's a joke at the end about the Poles and, of course, the Poles having been freed from Nazi tyranny, are under communist tyranny by mm. the end of the war. Mm. Stalin was a monster, I would say, of equal depravity mm. to Hitler, mm. and communism was an ideology of equal evil mm. to Nazism. Mm. Now, the whole of the cultural left hates this. They, just, and they, they never talk about the Nazi-Soviet pact, mm. and they hate the idea that Tito's partisans were murderers who killed every non-Nazi and non-communist uh, uh, source of leadership in uh, what would emerge to be Yugoslavia at that time. Uh, in the Sword of Honor trilogy, there are one or two um, communist traitors within the British Army who are really working for the Soviet Union rather than for, rather than for the British Army. And here I think you can make the case that war's views were really much more sophisticated than the than the satire and self-exaggeration he sometimes went into himself. Because the world, Second World War was certainly an absolutely moral war. The Allies were absolutely right to uh, fight it and win it. And in the end, I think they probably did have to um, reach an alliance with the Soviet Union. Yet there is no doubt there is an element of moral compromise. If the Soviets had invaded first and the Allies had reached an alliance with Nazi Germany, it would have been the same kind of moral compromise. Mm. Uh, and this is something which nobody likes to really deal with. Mm. It's challenging for the left and the right, mm. because the right went through a period of glorifying Uncle Joe Stalin. And uh, as I say, the whole, the title, The Sword of Honour, is about a sword which the British king had made to honour the people of Stalingrad and glorious Uncle mm. Joe Stalin. Now, again, war doesn't beat you over the head with this, but there is a consideration of this uh, of these politics at, the, at a very profound level, which is not reactionary, but which is very clear-eyed and um, which counts the moral cost of allying, however briefly, uh, with the communists. And of course, one reason Eastern Europe was enslaved after World War II was because of the dewy-eyed, silly 
view mm. that some leaders had of uh, of the communists mm. towards the end of World War II. I think you could make a case like that about Roosevelt and certainly not Churchill, uh, but of course Churchill lost power right at the end of, uh, of World War II. So I think this book rewards students of history and people who know a bit about 20th century history. I mean, it's not, you know, you don't need it in, in order to appreciate the novel, but I think it's making a very deep historical case as well as a deep um, cultural case as well as, of course, being just a terrifically rattling good read uh, all the way through, which always leaves you wanting to know what happens on the uh, on the next page. Which is one, which is why it's one of your five favourite books. Absolutely, exactly. <laughs> I can't really summarise it better than that. So I think we'll leave it there. And um, and I've absolutely loved this discussion, and I really look forward to the next one. And thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much, Bella. It's such fun to talk about these books. Thanks. Bye. All right. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Sign up today for only $55 and we'll also send you a free copy of the first book, The Year of Living Dangerously by Christopher Koch, which will be signed by Greg and myself. Plus, you'll also be invited to a very special online town hall event that we're having in August, where you can ask Greg any questions that you have about his choice of books. I'm so excited to be sharing this new series with you. For all the details, head to ipa.org.au.